If you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 33. We're pausing uh, just a moment from the book of Acts to uh, spend the Sundays in December looking at several Old Testament promises that anticipate the the coming of Christ and and kind of help give us uh, a sense of, a, a feel of the anticipation that the Old Covenant believers had as they waited for Uh, the first coming of Christ, and how that applies to our lives now as we anticipate uh, his return again in glory. And so this morning we'll be looking at Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through uh, 18. Just to kind of set the stage a bit, um, this comes in a section of Jeremiah where he has been telling them that there's going to be destruction, kind of Babylon is at the door sieging uh, Jerusalem and is about to capture Jerusalem and and then take off uh, the tribe of Judah that's there in Jerusalem into exile into Babylon. And it's a devastating moment in the history of God's people. And Jeremiah is speaking to them in that moment, telling them things are bad, they're going to get worse. And at the same time, that God is faithful to his promises and, and in particular, in this passage, he gives a promise of, of one who is coming who will indeed restore and uh, reverse this kind of curse of exile uh, in, in the future. And so that's the context for Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 18, or some, some of it. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read together from this part of God's word? Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 18. Pay careful attention, this is God's word, faithful and true. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord's help this morning? Father, this is your word. These things were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Father, we pray that you might grant us understanding uh, into these words spoken long ago and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and, and still yet await their fulfillment in his return again in glory. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, uh, teach us and instruct us, help us to receive these words with faith and love, to lay them up in our hearts and to practice them in our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would help us in all things to see Jesus Christ. We pray all of this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Uh, if you had to pick one word to describe uh, this, this kind of season of the year uh, as we 
kind of look forward to Christmas, now at the end of Thanksgiving and so forth. I, I think one word that you could pick that would describe adequately this season of the year, it would be anticipation. We're all kind of waiting. Perhaps some of you young ones are uh, anticipating and waiting for Christmas morning. You're looking forward to the presents, maybe uh, wondering what it is that you're going to unwrap or what's going to be laid out for you. And there's a bit of excitement. I remember being young and um, you know, waiting for that day to see what would come, to see what we would get. It was always exciting to anticipate that. Uh, and so this is a season of the year where there is much anticipation. Maybe you're not so young, not necessarily looking forward to the presents that will be uh, laid out on Christmas morning. Maybe you're looking forward to gathering with family and celebrating this time of year. Maybe you're looking forward to the end of gathering with family, and don't shake your head like you've never thought that. Um, there's lots of things we're anticipating, lots of things we are waiting for. That sense of anticipation, that, that kind of sense of waiting, uh, is also kind of a good way to think about the whole of the Christian life. The Christian life is characterized in large measure by waiting, by anticipation. People under the old covenant, from the garden onward, were waiting, anticipating the fulfillment of God's promise of a redeemer. And that promise was kind of sprinkled throughout the old covenant time period. They were reminded that God would keep his promise that one would come who would fully redeem them from their sin. And even with the coming of Christ, as we stand on this side of the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Jesus, we still live in a time of great anticipation because we live in between the times. Christ's first coming uh, in humility, his first coming in submission to his Father to give himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin to redeem God's people. And now as we wait for that time when he will come again, this time not in humility, but in full resurrected and ascended glory, the Lord Jesus will come again and bring to a consummation all that God has promised to do in Jesus Christ. We live in anticipation. Um, and as we come to this passage in Jeremiah, I think that's a helpful connection for us to kind of maybe put ourselves in the shoes of, of God's people who would have heard these words the first time. What was their context? What was their experience? What was it that they were anticipating? What was it that they were waiting for and looking forward to uh, as they heard these words? Uh, recently, I read through or started reading a book by our friend Palmer Robertson, uh, his latest book on, um, called The Christ of the Consummation, where he kind of goes through the Gospels and does a little bit of uh, biblical work there. And in the introduction to uh, Palmer's book, as he talks about this sense of anticipation, he, he made a statement that I thought was helpful. Uh, he said that the Lord had made, by the time that Jesus came, the Lord had made every single promise that was necessary to assure his people that he would bring about the renewal and the redemption of this corrupted creation, that everything that sin had damaged and destroyed, that God had made all the promises that he needed to make, that there would come a day when he would renew all things, that he would, when he would rescue his people. And up until the coming of Jesus, Palmer says that the only thing that was lacking 
was fulfillment of those words and that they find their fulfillment in Jesus. So if you can think about it in that way, the people in Jeremiah's day had promises, promises upon promises, assurance of God's promises that one day he would come and he would redeem his people. And the only thing that was lacking was fulfillment. Put yourself in their shoes for a moment and think about the problem they were facing the devastation of sin and its effects. God's people in the time of Jeremiah, this is about the 6th century B.C., so when you do the math with the B.C. stuff, it's 6th century is the 500s. So about the early 500s, around the 590s, 580s, Jeremiah is speaking to Israel, or to Judah rather, the southern kingdom, and what is the situation that they find themselves in? They find themselves in a situation where they have had an unending line of kings from David's family for about 400 years, a really long time, all things considered, when you think about uh, kingdoms and lineage and all that. 400 years they have had one of David's sons, one of David's descendants ruling over them as part of God's promises. And, and yet here they find themselves in a situation where their sin has gotten so bad. They've instituted, at various points, idolatry in the temple in Jerusalem, bringing in pagan images and pagan uh, uh, idols into the temple to worship that way. They've uh, allied themselves with these foreign nations rather than trusting in the Lord. They've put their lives in the hands of foreign kings Uh, all manner of wickedness and corruption, sacrificing children and all kinds of horrible things going on. And it's finally gotten to the point where the sin has kind of risen to a level where the Lord says, I've been patient, I've been patient, I've been patient, and now the sin is so bad that he is expelling them from the land of promise. They are going to be exiled by the hands of the Babylonians, who were not very nice people. And so here they are in Jerusalem, surrounded by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, this is that time period, and uh, things are going from bad to worse very quickly. And they're about to be kicked out, taken off to Babylon, exiled from the land of promise that they were given. And what we see in this is a picture of the devastation of sin and its effects and, and it's, a, it's a cycle that we've seen before. I think it was maybe Mark Twain who said that while history does not repeat itself, it does rhyme. Here you have a rhyme, kind of an echo of the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are placed in this land, this garden, this paradise. Uh, they're placed there to live with the living God, to have fellowship and communion with him, to to have dominion over the earth, to fill the earth with others who love the living God who are created in his image. And God says, this is yours, it's all for you, except for the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely, what? You'll die. And you remember what happens. Uh, They're they're deceived, they eat from the, the tree, and their eyes are opened, and they see the shame of their sin covering them. They run and hide from the living God who comes into the garden in the the cool of the day, as Moses tells us there. And God issues this curse. And one of the things that happens as a result of 
God's people in the place where God has set them, sinning against the command that, the God, that God had given them, one of the things that happens is they are exiled. They're cast out from the garden. And the angel, the cherubim, is set at the entrance of the garden with flaming swords as if to say, you cannot come back in. Here you have a very similar pattern repeated. God's people in the place where God had set them in Jerusalem, the temple placed there as the the dwelling place of God among his people, and he told them, honor me, love me, obey me, serve me. Uh, And yet, if you don't do those things, there will come a point where I will cast you out from the land. And here they are. Sin and its effects have ravaged God's people, and they're on the cusp of exile, being cast out from the place where God had set them as part of his promise. This is a picture for us uh, of sin and its effects in our lives. We We may not be thinking about it in terms of being in a particular place and being cast out, uh, but sin in our lives has the same effect in essence, that we are called to live with God in in love and in fellowship and in obedience. And sin has disrupted all of that. It's disrupted the whole world. Things do not work as they ought to. Our lives don't operate the way that they ought to. It probably wouldn't take long if we were to just pause and consider how sin has affected our lives, your own life personally, family relationships, looking out beyond that to the world at large, see how much hatred there is, how much violence, um, you know, how many more times do we have to see on the news uh, people being shot just randomly and viciously. And our world is full of sin and its effects. And there's no denying it. And this is, this is the world we live in. And this is the thing that prompts in our hearts this anticipation, this longing, this waiting for the day when sin and its effects will be put away, when all of it will be made right. This was the situation that they were living in, in some sense, in the 6th century, as they were being besieged by Babylon on the verge of being cast out from the place where God had placed them. And it's in the midst of that devastation, in the midst of that heartache, uh, in the midst of that violence, that Jeremiah comes with a promise from the Lord. And it's interesting, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, it's always those times of crisis and devastation where the prophets show up They call people to repentance, but they also show up in the midst of this devastation and they say, God is coming. God is faithful. God will keep his promises to you. He is gracious and his promises are bigger than you can imagine and he is always faithful to keep them. And here Jeremiah shows up in that same moment with this word from the Lord. And these are abundant promises. um, Some of you maybe work in sales uh, and, and or you've had contact with people who work in sales. I, I think it's a common mantra in the retail world that it's a good thing to under-promise and over-deliver. You know, this kind of keep good customer satisfaction. 
You don't say everything that you're going to do, but then you do more than what you said you would do. And then you have happy customers and you can serve your customers well. I want you to think about God's promises in a similar way, except this. God doesn't underpromise and overdeliver. God overpromises and then overdelivers. His his promises are so abundant. They're so amazing that that you almost can't fathom how how big they are. And then when he fulfills his promises, they're even larger than what you expected. The fulfillment goes beyond even what we could ask or think. It's in that context Jeremiah brings this renewed It's not a a new promise, not a brand new promise. It's a renewed promise to the people of Judah. Verse 14, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What is that promise? Verse 15, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And again, verse 17, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Here, Jeremiah is reminding them of the promise that the Lord made to David. We call it the Davidic covenant. And in that promise that the Lord made to David, kind of two, two promises merged together into one stream. God made to David a promise that David would have a house. You remember the context of this promise. David said to the Lord, I want to build you a house. And God says, I don't need you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, meaning a dynasty, a kingdom. God made a promise to David. You can read this in 2 Samuel 7, that David and his descendants would occupy the throne of God's people forever. It was a perpetual promise. And at the same time that God made that promise of a dynasty for David that would be merged with God's rule over his people, he also made a promise about a dwelling place, Jerusalem. This will be the place where I will set my name, where I will dwell among my people. So those two things, David's kingdom and a descendant of David on the throne forever, and the place, the dwelling place of God among his people, Jerusalem, those two things are kind of joined at the hip in the mind of God's people. And they're shaped by that promise. And so here they are. And what's going on? They're about to be kicked out of the place. They're about to be exiled from the place where God said, you'll dwell and I'll dwell with you. David's line has been cut down, uh, or it's about to be cut down. The king's still living at this point, but he's going to die. And there won't be a descendant of David on the throne for like 400 years. And so they're looking at these promises and they're looking at their situation. And as uh, Burton Ernie taught us, one of these things is not like the other. God, you made promises that David's sons would be on the throne forever and that we would have, you would dwell among us in this place forever. And now we're getting kicked out of the place and David's line is about to be cut down. And Jeremiah comes into this situation and says, in those days... And at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. He uses this imagery of a branch, which becomes kind of a title for the Messiah in the Old Testament. But you can kind of capture the imagery, right? You cut down a tree down to its stump, and if you don't, grind the stump down or kill the stump some other way, what what happens to the stump? 
you get little shoots that, that come off of it, little branches that start to grow up. It's like it's, you've cut it down, but there's still life there. And, and Jeremiah is saying, the Lord is saying, David's line might be cut down like a stump, but I will cause to spring up from that stump a branch, a root from David's line who will rule with justice and righteousness. It's the promise of a king who will reverse the effects of sin and restore the people to the land. And this is the promise throughout the prophets. There's judgment coming. You're going to be cast out, but a king will come who will bring you back into fellowship with the living God. Now, here's the thing. As God's people were shaped by this promise, as they were anticipating the promise, their expectation was slightly different than the way God chose to fulfill this promise. So fast forward a little bit to the time of the the coming of Christ. What are they expecting? What are they hoping for? In many ways, they're hoping for a king from the line of David who will again take up the sword and maybe cast out the Roman oppressors or cast out the uh, you know, King Herod, who wasn't really fully Jewish, you know, kick off this, um, uh, oh, what's the word I'm trying to look for? This, he's, he's playing a part. You know what I'm trying to say. This, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Imposter. Thank you. I couldn't get it. Kick out this imposter from the throne of Israel and restore a rightful king from the line of David. One who will be strong and mighty, who will come with power and overthrow the powers that are ruling over us in oppression. And yet, how does the announcement come? It comes to shepherds in a field. Behold, today in the city of David, not Jerusalem, where the kings were, but in Bethlehem, where David was from, where his family was from. In the city of David, that's where the king has been born. The wise men from the east show up and they go to Jerusalem first because that's where the kings are. And Herod says, ah, you know, there's no king that's been born here. They find out from the prophet Micah. It's in Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem uh, later than the shepherds, obviously, a couple years later. They go later and they find that the king is not one with a sword in his hand. He's not one sitting on a throne with, with power overthrowing Roman oppressors. It's a child a child who will one day grow to be a man and who will give his life on a cross. The instrument of cruel death used by the Romans, an instrument of weakness, the king will come. And the way that he will reverse the effects of sin and restore God's people to fellowship with himself is not through worldly power, not through a sword, but through a cross, giving himself as the sacrifice for sin, to remove the very thing that had brought the devastation to begin with, to remove the very thing that separates us from the living God, Jesus will come. This king will come, this righteous branch from David. He will be righteous. He will rule with righteousness and justice, not like all these other kings who failed in so many ways. He will be the perfect ideal king, and he will give himself for you to rescue you and to bring you into salvation. The righteous king from the line of David will come, which is why when Joseph has his dream where the angel tells him, don't don't put Mary out, he finds out she's pregnant, he scratches his head about this, and he says, "Don't, don't do anything. This is from the Lord. 
And when the angel comes to David in that dream, you remember what he calls him? Joseph, son of David. And Joseph's like, my dad's name is not David, but he gets it. He's in the line of David. This is a king from the line of David. Or the blind beggars calling out to Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. What do they call him? Jesus, son of David. They get it. They were waiting for the, the king in David's line to come who would reverse and restore, reverse the effects of sin and restore them into fellowship with the living God. And the righteous king has come in Jesus who gave himself for us. Jesus, the righteous king, the branch of David, David's son and yet David's Lord, descended from David in the flesh, declared the son of God in power at his resurrection. The promise has been made, a righteous king who will reverse and restore. The promise is also fulfilled in Jesus, who is our king and priest, and who gives us his righteousness. Did you catch that at the end of the passage, that the promise expands out from just a king who will come and who will sit on the throne forever to priests who will minister before God and offer sacrifices continually, forever, without ceasing as well. Jesus fulfills this promise to us, uh, not simply by coming to be our king, but also by coming to be our priest who intercedes for us all the time. He rules over us in righteousness and justice, and he prays for us all the time. Jesus is the priest, the perfect priest, who offered himself as a sacrifice for sin and who now ascended into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father, as the book of Hebrews tells us, prays for us. He ever lives to intercede for us. Or as John tells us, he is our righteous advocate who pleads on our behalf before the Father that his blood and his righteousness are enough for us. This is good news for people in need of hope. Like those who lived in Jeremiah's time, it's often easy for us to think that the devastating, hard, difficult circumstances in life can threaten God's promises. God's people in Jeremiah's day saw these promises of a perpetual king and a perpetual place threatened as they were cast into exile and David's line was cut down. And yet it's in the midst of that darkness that God brings the light of his promises and says, don't fear. I will keep my promises. I will fulfill my word, and nothing can stand in the way of that. They looked ahead in faith to the coming of the king and priest who would fulfill these promises. We, we get to look back and see how Jesus has come, how Jesus has given himself, how Jesus is now ruling and reigning from heaven as the king of kings and lord of lords, but we still yet look forward to that time when he will come again. You see, Jesus, when he came to fulfill these promises, it was kind of a one-two punch, right? He fulfills it, but there's part of it that's not yet fulfilled that remains to be completed at his return again. But if he has done it the first time, he won't fail to keep his promises the second time and to bring all things to completion at the return of Christ. So we live in anticipation. Not that Jesus will be born again and He's already come. He's already given himself for us. He's already accomplished salvation. And for those who have received salvation through faith in his name, 
we live in anticipation of the further fulfillment of all of his promises. We live now with sin and its effects. They still damage our lives. We still live with the, the ripple effect of sin, uh, our own words, our own thoughts, our own actions, just living in a world corrupted by sin. And yet Jesus has said one day he will come and he will make all things new. He will bring an end to sin and death. In every tear, he himself will wipe away. The king has come. He is at work now, pushing back the effects of sin, and he will come again one day to fully restore and fully reverse sin and all of its effects because he has taken it in himself at the cross and declared victory over it in his resurrection. Sin brings devastation, but God has made a promise to give a king, a king who would come to deal with the problem of sin, one who is also a priest who prays and intercedes for us all the time. God will always keep his promises, and nothing that we face will ever stop that. Nothing is more powerful than the love of God in Christ and his promises that are kept for us. We might ask ourselves, the face of sin and all of its damage, why would God do all of this for us? And the answer is, because of his great love, because he is faithful, because he has promised to do it, and that which he has promised, he will keep. All of his promises, as scripture says, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so as we wait, as we live in, in anticipation of the final fulfillment of God's promises, may we live in hope, may we live and walk by faith. Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. Would you pray with me?